are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's talk about one of the most complicated issues in the world of genre films, censorship. It's a heavy topic with little consensus and lots of personal opinions. What is your line between social responsibility and free artistic expression? Obviously, the physical, sexual, and mental abuse of children and women and men and animals is against the law and with good reason, whether it's in front of a camera or in real life. But what about fictional depictions of said acts? Where does telling a story end and the violation of the people involved begin? The consumers and the filmmakers alike have their own standards of responsibility. Back in 1964, US Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said of obscenity, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. That's a pretty slippery slope upon which to base a nation's legal system, but it doesn't seem to have changed much in the 60 some years since. When we were making the Masters of Horror series, Showtime gave us a set of five rules not to break. No adults killing kids, no male genital nudity, and a couple more nebulous guidelines, none of which we ever broke. However, perhaps the most transgressive of all the filmmakers on the show, Takashi Miike, made an episode called Imprint that was so disturbing overall that the network refused to show it. Was that right? It was a great experience watching Miike shoot the film and to see him handle the child actress as well as the rest of the cast with care and sensitivity, showing the little girl the fakeness of the creepy effects and protecting her from seeing things that might be too tough for her to deal with. The film is harrowing, provocative, disturbing, and horrific, and also a beautiful work of cinematic art. I wouldn't have made it, but I'm glad he did, and I would and did defend it in every way. Where do you draw the line? Is it the hardcore sex scenes in Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac? Is it the cruelty of so-called torture porn movies like Hostel? Like I said, it's complicated. Obviously, there's a lot of material that children in particular should not be exposed to. But is it the filmmaker's responsibility to raise your children or the parents? That's why the Motion Picture Association of America created the rating system in 1968. It was meant to keep censorship from taking place, but had the effect of the studios making films to fit the ratings rather than the intended other way around. It's a complicated question and one to which I have no answer except to myself. As a citizen of the world, I feel a sense of responsibility. But where would you draw the line? What is your stand in regards to censorship? I'd love to hear what you think. Our guests today are cinematic provocateurs themselves. The films of the Twisted Twins, Jen and Sylvia Soska, are unflinching in their approach to horror and suspense. We'll get to know more about their roots and their work in an uncompromising genre after this. Available now from Dread, Bad Candy. On Halloween night in New Salem, radio DJs Chili Billy, Corey Taylor, and Paul, Zach Galligan from Gremlins tell a twisted anthology of terrifying local myths that lead to a grim end for small-town residents. So if you love Slipknot, Gremlins, and horror, this is the film for you. Bad Candy is out now on demand everywhere, and you can get your hands on the Blu-ray October 10th. 
Coming soon to dread, Val. Finn, a wanted criminal, hides out with an escort named Val, a demon. No, this is not the Val Kilmer documentary. Val offers to make his problems disappear if he follows her rules. She's been expecting him all along, and it won't be easy to escape Val's dungeon. You can catch Val on October 5th and on Blu-ray November 2nd. After 100 interviews, it's really tough to come up with topics for discussion at the beginning of the show. It's a brilliant topic for discussion. It's actually my favorite. And especially in Canada, we've had, I mean, I think David Cronenberg literally had the censorship committee cut his film and take it from him. That's how much censorship problems we have. Well, what is your experience in that regard? I mean, you started out with Dead Hooker in a Trunk. Now, that's as provocative a title and subject matter as it could get to. I mean, it gets into bestiality and necrophilia. So, so tell me about the, the glee of provocation that you guys seem to share in your films. Well, the interesting thing is uh, being identical twins everybody wants to control the narrative of you. Everybody's telling you you're exactly this. We went into film when we were kids uh, around the age of seven, not because we were particularly talented, just because the Olsen twins exist. And they're like, oh, you guys must be (laughs) the same thing. And uh, we are very, very much not the same thing. Like we are, our mom loves horror movies, was obsessed with horror movies. And we had a deal that if we would read the book, we were allowed to move, watch the movie. So it would start with like us reading Stephen King at nine and then we'd watch the movies and we'd be like, oh my gosh. So as we grew up, we never fit into this like Olsen twin, cute little thing. And we continued acting. And as soon as we got anywhere towards uh, puberty, all of a sudden the roles were like hypersexualize this. You're in a bikini today. And we thought that was cool. But at the same time, I was like, like don't dad's not really proud of this I mean we have a 4.0 GPA and he's like why does my daughter only have slutty this sexy this on her acting resume I'm like oh no (laughs) and so we ended up quitting acting to go to a film school that lied and said it was the only film school possible that could like turn whatever you wanted yeah that's what they were doing they got 10% of the commissions and at the very end of the school they took our funding which was $200 to make our own short film and it pissed us off so much. And they're like, twins, you just go in another group. And they had a list of everything too inappropriate to put in their school films. And I was like, wow, we should put everything in there. We've got <laughs> bestiality and necrophilia. And we're like, we should do this. Like, we should make something like super killer. And I didn't know what the idea was, but we had been going uh, to see Grindhouse in the theaters like every day after class because Rodriguez and Tarantino are such heroes of ours. And we were like, okay, well, we're going to film school, but let's go back to the film school that really got us into it. And then one day coming out, Jen goes, dead hooker in a trunk. And I'm like, what's that? And she's like, that's going to be the title of it. And we're going to make it a fake trailer. And we're just going to put it at graduation and, and fuck and we'll see what happens. I was very inspired by Hobo with a shotgun. I heard how Jason Eisner won a competition, which I had no idea was going on because I would have tried to come in Ugh. with dead hooker in a trunk. And I watched, I think we saw Grindhouse in theaters, like maybe 20 something times. We saw it a wow. lot almost every day after school. People are like three hours is a long time for a movie. We're like, yeah, you're right. Sometimes instead <laughs> of school, cause it was like a glorified cold reading course. And I was like, are we still reading the thing that I've memorized everyone's roles for? Okay, cool. I'm just gonna go watch this and try and learn something. I actually thought Dead Hooker in a Trunk was a comedy yeah. at first. And it was also our very dark satire about how the lives of sex 
masks workers are not taken seriously, yeah. especially in Vancouver. And we had this huge pandemic or epidemic with these Native American sex workers going missing, ended up being the Picton farm killer. Yeah. Funnily enough, because wow, with, the, with the hogs and everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that was something going. That was one of the I didn't create the title Dead Hooker in a Trunk. I know it is very offensive, oh, but yeah. I made it very self-aware so we could discuss it in the film. The only life that is treated with any respect is the sex worker. Everyone gets like their eyes knocked out and their arms chopped off and sewn <laughs> up with fishing wire. It's all very slapstick and funny until that death kind of has a, a look at it because it's supposed to say like what does life matter and i always thought that the greatest thing about horror movies is they're like dramas just yeah. with something good that happens they hide them. the lesson in something <laughs> so cool nobody thinks they're gonna watch dead hooker in a trunk and come out of there being like oh wow yeah they that's nice that they tried to put that girl to rest and oh the filmmakers are not talking about that the Picton killers and how that was irresponsible like nobody would want to hear the drama but they're like oh these twins and they're talking about this and they're like oh they had a lesson they had a reason for doing it but proudly bend in Saskatoon yeah. which is sad it's a little Canadian town and I'm like I want to call it Saskatoon I wanted to take over that town but one day perhaps I don't I think the people of the Saskatoon like us I don't think the censors ever like us yeah so the title was kind of a devil edged sword um even we would send our money out to film festivals and they would even tell us they didn't watch it but they took the money they're like we just don't show movies like this I'm like did you watch it like what you would have to be crazy to make this movie and make it literal and be like this is a how-to like it what and also as <laughs> I, as an I educational dead, film yeah right yeah. well i i they always say, well, it's because you guys are twins and you know, it's just so much easier for you. How many twins are there that look like us that are directors like this? And I, yeah. I know that I'm, I'm so used to being the butt of the joke. I was like, OK, well, let's let's take that experience and put it through this woman's work. And it took a while, like even after the movie was out and people were saying nice things about it, they're like, well, you guys can make a crappy rough movie, but obviously that was it for me. We'll never hear from you again. Yeah, a grindhouse movie isn't a real movie. Yeah, and uh, well, especially, especially when your budget is twenty five hundred bucks, you cobbled together twenty five hundred dollars for your first movie. So tell me how you made a movie with twenty five hundred dollars. Well, the only way you can make work in Vancouver, there was a writer's strike in L.A. Yeah. <laughs> so when there's no work in L.A., there is definitely no work in Vancouver. It's like and John is the dead when mm -hmm. Helen's got closed. The, the, yeah, the, the walk will own there. Yeah, and there was nothing <laughs> happening here. And there's two kinds of people that make film, and I'm sure you know. People who do it as a job, they don't watch the shit. They don't like the shit. They just, yeah. they just are there. And a lot of people laughed in our faces saying, you're going to make a movie with like, we had like a 53 page script on Word. Word like, and, uh, <laughs> it was, and they're like, you, this is not even a real script. And like, what's missing? And they're like, the scene headings. I'm like, okay. And the cut twos. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but, but the $2,500 was way over budget for us. We thought we could do it for free. We called in our uh, our friends. Like um, at the school that we went to, they had an excellent outsourced uh, stunt yeah. program. And Laurel Lash Chartrand, uh, who's an amazing coordinator, producer, director, he ended up being our teacher for that. And he thought we were crazy. We're like, we just want to be set on fire. And he's like, ladies, seriously? And he set us on fire since then. And he was one of the first people who was like, okay, well, Sounds like you're going to need stunt people. And we're like, you're darn right. And uh, it's so funny. <laughs> people thought we were so crazy. 
it even went to Los Angeles and we were like, we're like Robert Rodriguez, we're doing El Mariachi. And El Mariachi himself, Carlos Gallardo, heard what we were doing, thought we were crazy, and also said, I will be in your movie on one condition. We're like, what? He's like, you cannot pay me. I was like, oh, that's the budget Yay. we're looking for, Carlos. And he plays God. And he plays he God. Does. It's so perfect because he he was like the god of like indie film. Him and Robert, I mean. I, I, the reason we had to make it for 2500 is because we thought it was seven grand for yeah. El Mariachi. I remember Carlos laughing and being like, you know how much after it was like in post-production, the final budget of El Mariachi was? And it was like, oh my God, if I knew it was like six figures, I wouldn't be trying to be like, we have to beat Robert. We have to beat Robert. Well, you didn't have yeah. six figures for that. No, no. <laughs> if you listen to the sound in uh, Dead Hooker in a Trunk, we def definitely didn't have like six figures of posts. Yeah, we got better. <laughs> what did you spend the 2,500 on? Oh, uh, a chainsaw, uh, a Good. hotel rental, pizza, some very <laughs> light prosthetics, the cop uniforms. The cop uniforms. The semi truck was eighty dollars. Yeah, and uh, so much. All of it. Like everyone who acted, almost all of the crew, all donated their time as well. Because also they're like, "Haha, this won't go anywhere." And I was like, "No, this is going to be the greatest film ever." I came in with Ed Wood confidence. Oh, it was Ed Wood confidence. <laughs> we had never. If I knew more about making a movie, I don't think it would happen. Because people are like, "Do you know what you're doing?" And we're like, "No." And that, that makes should we? Yeah. Should no. we? I mean, they're like, you're gonna get arrested. I'm like, will we? I don't. We haven't. Like, we actually went to uh, a national park, Stanley Park, and we were digging in the middle for the bearing a hooker scene. And the rangers came over and started moving people away and be like, oh, they're shooting a movie. Let them. No, no asking if we had permission. No, any. I mean, you can't do that now. But back then, that was we were we got lucky. We got really well. Lucky. Stanley Park. Stanley Park was definitely one of our primary locations when we were doing Masters of Horror up there. Oh, it's so beautiful yeah. there. And and you guys are from North Vancouver, which is really beautiful. So you happen to be born at just the right time to be in Vancouver with the explosion of the Canadian film industry that parallels your lives. It's and so it had true. to have a great effect on on how you were able to grow into filmmakers right there in the midst of what became Canada's center of production. Absolutely. Absolutely. X-Files, I think, really is the city, the show that built up the city. I mean, that was one of my dreams to be on X-Files when I was much, much littler. I remember watching... Uh, the episode with the twins in it and being like, damn, could have been me. Could it so close, so close, <laughs> could have been me. And I remember seeing a very, very young Catherine Isabel, very good in X-Files being like, one day I'm gonna work with that shit. Well, it's weird because <laughs> it is such a, it, it is uh, such a big community for film, but it is very small. Like when Jennifer and I were extras on Josie and the Pussycats, that's how we met <laughs> Catherine Isabel. And we did a few crowd scenes together and she was nice. And after I walked away, I was like, you know what? That favorite actress of mine, I'm going to write a movie for. And that's how, that's so weird that that's how it happened. And it's from such a, a, a unique little film like that. Like anyone that's ever been nice to us, we write a role for a CM Punk, write a role. Uh, Seth Green, I'm still waiting because yeah. he, he's always been nice. No matter, <laughs> no matter I, what. Actually, I wrote an episode of Amazing Stories that Seth Green starred in. When he was nine nine years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He's the nicest person and he's also the best adjusted child actor I've ever met. He's just And so his cool. wife his wife is the lead in Valerie on the stairs. 
Oh, my, my Masters I of Horror. Valentina. Claire Grant, yeah. Yeah, she's gorgeous. She's got such so a great, great. look. They're yeah. such she's a great quite... couple. They give me faith for couples actually staying together. <laughs> there you go. There, there's hope. Um, so in the beginning, your film was the enemy of film festivals, a dead, dead hooker in a trunk. Um, but festivals became your hero when it came to American Mary, which was a movie made with more resources, with recognizable actors, very, uh, you know, very well-made film. Okay. And it really exploded at the festivals. And suddenly they were good for you and not kicking your butt. Oh, absolutely. It all started with Fright Fest in the UK. Yeah. And it was funny because once the movie was done and this happened a lot during post, people were like, I don't know if anybody's going to get it. And I said, no, I think there's a lot of people into body modification and maybe not as extreme like this, but I also think people who are, I think a lot of women, it's they're going to respond to it and things like that. And people like, no, this is disturbing. This is scary. And I remember it played at the Cannes market in the afternoon to maybe 12 people. There's maybe three left. We had walkouts. One lady walked out shaking her head saying no the whole time. I was like, not what you expected, Ken. <laughs> not what you expect. But Paul McAvoy from Fright Fest was there and he decided to program and he's like, that was a really special movie. And he said, I left other movies that had big premieres in the afternoon to come into that little sweaty box to see yours. And it, it got me so much. And, uh, it was fantastic. I remember they gave us uh, a premiere with uh, 4,000 seats. I didn't think people would be there. It was a Sunday morning and they wow. had, they didn't even have standing room. And insane. I had never, well, you know what it's like when you're in a theater and you've planned all these little moments. And by the time you're done, you're sequestered with your editor and you don't even know if anybody's going to like it, but you're so in your head. And that first laugh or that first reaction that you planned and you're like, oh, they're going to get it. And we were so lucky that Universal picked it up. So our going from Dead Hooker in a Trunk to seeing the Universal logo before your movie about body <laughs> modification that your parents remortgaged their house to be the investors for, it's it's surreal. Like that that was amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, and just, no, go, go ahead. ahead. No. No, I, I was going to say. Going from like Dead Hooker, it toured the world without us. I mean, if anybody asked for Dead Hooker, the joke is we'd send it. There was... um. My favorite place that it played was a week-long frat party yes. and it was just on repeat on the TV and there were like drinking, drugging, fucking. I know because they wrote afterwards and they're like, you know, I don't think anyone sat and saw it all the way through in one time, but it was the only thing on TV over and over again. And it was like the movie of this like big, crazy week. And I was like, great. That's, that just feels like exactly where Dead Hooker should have played. And then flash forward. 4,000 seat theater that we're actually present for. And of course we had that good foresight to wear tiny little fetish outfits. And we're like, gosh, I they really like us. <laughs> and if they don't like us, maybe they'll be nice because we dress really, really cute, but. Well, and everybody that? wanted to interview you then, right? Yeah. I know, I never had so many people offer me a drink. I'm like, I just, I'm like a hundred pounds. I can't drink that much, but thank you very much <laughs> for the compliment. We had never, we had never done a press wall before. So they never really, they never explained it to us. So when people were there, we're like, oh, we're going to sign autographs for those people. They're like, oh no, no, you have to talk to that row of 12 people. I'm like, what? And they're like, you go there and then you go there and you go there you go there and it's just like I look back at those interviews and I look like I've been hit by a happy <laughs> train I'm just like so excited and so beaming and I'm like you want to talk about this movie what <laughs> well you talk about the support of your parents to actually 
mortgage their house to help you pay for American Mary. Um, no tell me, tell me how you were, how, what the family was like. Uh, you, you said your mother let you watch the horror movies if you read the books they were based on. So what was it like? Did your parents both like the genre as well, or were they indulging you? I know that my mom loved the genre and my dad is also very Catholic. It's not that he hates the genre, but there was always like when you're raising a young person, there's like, oh, don't like, I remember my dad paused Beetlejuice once when Be he was saying, I got demons running all through me, went over my head. I didn't even know what the fuck was going on. And he's <laughs> like, you know, it's bad to call upon a demon. And I'm like, yeah, where have you been? I mean, ever since my first horror movie, my mom ruined us. My mom loves horror movies. And when you're a little girl, you want to do whatever the fuck your mom is you doing. You want to be your mom. Sorry for the language, but I love my mom. And she was always reading Stephen King novels. And they're like a Bible, you know? Yeah. So if you've read one, you've really put the work in. Yes. So my mom, I think, made the allegiance with my dad of like, listen, if they're reading a book, under 10 we a started high, reading a high Stephen school King. level yeah yeah then what's the big problem and she always sat there and watched it with us and if I ever uh. had a question she would answer it and she had the best answers like in uh was it oh, oh Cujo. Cujo yeah Cujo Cujo had a subplot about a pedophile and I didn't know what that word meant and I was also way too young to really know what that word meant and I asked my mom what's this pedophile and she's like oh that's a person who hunts children. I'm like, oh, that's Brilliant. real. And she's like, yes, people hunt children. And when we grew up late and the worst was the swear words because she didn't know how to explain them to me. She's like, whenever you see that F word, don't ask me what it is. It's <laughs> but Stephen doesn't just say the F word. He attaches it to pot, to head, to like- <gasps> He made so of, many oh jokes, Oh my yeah. gosh, the way he cusses was like, someone losing their temper a, a thousand times at once. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember we would get, we got our whole class in trouble because we started bringing in Stephen King books and then they wanted to read Stephen King books. And then they were like, these, they're not allowed to. And we got called to the principal's office and my mom was like, are they still honor roll students? And they were like, well, yes. And they're like, so what's the problem? Just like, well, they're scaring the other kids. She's like, fine. The boring children. So she would put covers on our books so we would be able to still read them. And I remember they'd be like, horror movies and comics books and wrestling is never going to pay off for you. And I'm like, you guys yeah, live my, like a hell reality of just horror movies and comic books now. My grandmother said to me, where's all that spooky stuff going to get you? Well, master of horror. Like, <laughs> a pretty nice life. Yeah, a pretty good life. <laughs> That's what I would say when someone's like, oh, well, you know, you think kids should watch horror. I'm like, yeah, if there there are people who are very sensitive to things, and then there are people like me who's like a six year old saying, "I don't, I can." I'm watching Hellraiser, and I'm like, "It looks too plastic. It should have been powdered down," you know. Or I can see the edge here. Like I was watching such gory things. She was watching a Serbian film. She's like, "That baby and that prosthetic. I don't think it matches up." And I was like, "Nobody's looking that close. They're supposed to be horrified." I know, but I would I would disturb much older people because as a child, I'd be like I watched this and it didn't look and they're like oh this is terrible you can't Hellraiser at 12 but and my dad bless him was, we started acting since we were seven he took me to every audition I never booked a single one in my life God bless him. <laughs> and uh then when we went into directing uh he it took two years of pitching American Mary and he saw it 
nothing happening with it. And it's, it's not like my dad loves body modification or anything like that. My dad feels like everybody should be able to be themselves. And he's very protective of that. And he's, he's, he's like a really good guy that way. And it was our, my mom, my sister and I all share a birthday and we were together for our birthday. And I was, when I do a movie, I'm obsessed. So I was complaining about American Mary, no doubt. And he looked over at me and he's like, you know what, Sylvie, we finally paid off the house. What we're going to do is we're going to be the people to put this money in. And at that time, we were trying to get a big name actor, put his money in escrow. And he ended up going out. So my dad was the first person to put the first investment in the movie. And then everybody went after that. And I mean, there's there's nothing like that. Like, you can always be like, oh, are my parents proud of me? I'm like, well, I, I know for sure because they, they believed in me and then they really liked the product. And if you see Dr. Janosch, the one who, the German doctor who does the surgery with Mary, that is my dad. He's in the uh, movie. He's a fantastic uh, actor. And then my mom's at the very end. She gets the bird away from, uh, uh, she protects the bird. She's the cop in that. But I I love my folks. We got, we got really lucky. I mean, we're weird. Most people would be like, maybe simmer that down a little bit, but they've always uh, inspired, encouraged us to follow our dreams. Yeah. And it breaks the stereotype of being like Catholic raised and liking horror movies. When we shot Dead Hooker in a trunk, we shot it in the hall of our church. Yes, we did. And it was donated. And they were, all they asked was, is it pornography? And I was like, oh my no! Oh my God, no, of course not. But the, what had happened is some nice church person let somebody else film inside the church. Yeah. And it was pornography. And now they're like, we always have to ask. And I'm like, most people know not to shoot porn. Nobody knows. You have to ask. They even have like big containers at Walmart that say, don't put your baby in here. If that sticker <laughs> wouldn't exist, if somebody didn't need that. Yeah. I remember. And don't that- put your hooker in the trunk. Don't yeah. put no. your hooker in the trunk. It's yeah. too hot for it's them in there. Right you got to crack it. I remember the church congregation went to dead hooker and then all the church ladies went over to me and Jen, they're like, which one of you was the badass? And I was like, oh shit. I was like, that's, that was me. And she's like, some days I just feel like that. I wish I could do that too. Good. <laughs> and I was like, that. talk about breaking stereotypes. And I always love playing with that. Cause like, I mean, we look like a stereotype, but that's always fun to play with too. I mean, like we grew up in Elvira. I was like, I love how she talks because everyone thinks they know who she is. And then she just like, this is who I actually am. She throws it back at them. Oh, and she comes out of improv comedy with the, the groundlings. And yes! It's just such a, such a sweet, smart, uh, intuitive artist. You know, she's oh, yeah. really great and talented. Um, but there's a tremendous progress between Dead Hooker in a Trunk and American Mary. There's much more um, the use of the tools of cinema. It's obvious that you learned a lot. So tell me about the progression and how that happened between those two movies, aside from the budget of $2,500 and something a little more resembling a realistic budget. Well, I would have loved to shoot Dead Hooker in a trunk with more sophistication, but we knew with the budget that the grindhouse genre just lends itself to any mistakes. The mistakes almost become lovable. I'm a huge fan of Asian and European cinema where they have those beautiful long shots and performance. And it, I, I'm not really a jump scare type girl, although I've you know accepted that jump scares are here to stay. So throw you a, do couple. a couple good ones. I actually like, I'm, if I talk about See No Evil 2, it's, that's jump scare palooza. That's all I do. I'm like, <laughs> okay, let's get the jump scares in there. But if, if we're allowed to do what we do, I just like to get under people's skin and really simmer. 
one of the backhanded compliments we got with Dead Hooker in a Trunk is that you can only make a messy movie and you rely on your gore. And I was like, whoa, whoa. We, had, we didn't even have a cameraman for some of them. Like we had a log that we put the HVX on and then we'd go after and be like, did we get the shot? Like, there, But there was a one scene, the campfire scene in Dead Hooker that we shot four times and we ran away from the cops and it helped for the end scene of American Mary because we were being thrown out of the location and Jennifer managed to keep us uh, in there so we could shoot it. Yeah. Uh, I really took the criticism that, you know, that you could only, for whatever reason, they're like, Dead Hooker is good for a bad movie. And I was like, what are you, what, so your $2,500 movie is better? Okay. So I really felt that American <laughs> Mary was us being like, this is what we, this is, if you really want to see our souls, if you really want to see what we can do, this is what we would do if we had minimum interference yeah and they asked us not to do it they asked could you girls do like a normal movie instead and we made this monster movie that is finally finally like 13 years later going into production and they read that and they're like actually let's do the one about body modification this monster one's even worse (laughs) (laughs) and Um, that's the one that expanded your reputation to allow you to continue on to bigger and better things um the obvious question is, how do you break down the work between the two of you? You know, the, the Cohen brothers, one is more technical and one is more with the actors, that sort of thing. But for identical twins, um, is it equal work, equal pay, or uh, how do you divide that? <laughs> they just get Sylvia. They only pay in they only. I just mission. show up. I'm like the Tyler Dirt, and they're like, is Sylvia going to be here today? Well, you're not paying her. You don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> It actually has been two people and women every time that we've worked. I won't say how much we make, but we've made sure that we continue building on it because there is a, and there was, I doubt it is right now, but as we were going up, there was uh, situations where the two of us would be doing the same exact job as a male friend of ours. And he would have a longer budget and bigger time, same company. And I say, that's, that's not really fair. So we have stayed there so that like, I do think that behind the scenes, female salaries are a bit more competitive. Well, also, it's, it's we two, did hold out. It's also the two for one thing. Cause they're yeah. always like, but here's the thing. Every movie has been shot in 15 days, except for rabbit. They told us 25 days. And then by the time it was 19 days, we were too pregnant with the movie to leave. <laughs> it was like, we were at the brood. We're like, Oh shit. Well, okay. And, and it was uh, 19 days. Wow. <laughs> 19 days. Wow. Who could have thought a movie could be done like that? Certainly not me and my crew. <laughs> but, you know, it, it it's so helpful to have two people. I honestly don't know how a director does it as one person. I uh, I never leave set. Once I, I, I get to uh, location, I go to set. I'm talking to my DP. I'm talking to uh, my production designer. I'm going through all the beats. And Jen's at Village, and she's going to be ta- talking to the actors and checking on the monsters. This girl is... She is so wonderfully detail oriented and we have such a beautiful relationship with Masters Effect. Like every movie that we have, we've been working together with them. And yeah, you started with them on on uh, American Mary, right? And they've done everything yeah, since. Absolutely. Todd, they were, yeah. Todd was so kind. I mean, he did Six Feet Under. He didn't have to help us with American Mary. And uh, they made that amazing puppet for the Dr. Grant effect where uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, spoiler, you should. There's a really good effect that really upsets people, but it's it's very effective. And uh, I think that was one of the things that really put us on the mark. And then we brought them back to the WWE movies. And it's so, 
so great at gore. I mean, poor Catherine Isabel. I don't think she ever makes it more than a few minutes in a movie of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I like to joke, how do you make a movie in 15 days? Particularly, I didn't know that Vendetta until like two days before we went to camera was going to be only 15 days because it was an action movie. Yeah. How do you make an action movie in 15 days? There's two of me literally two of me and at one point <laughs> if we've missed something I am always the one that is putting out fires by the time you see fire on set I must be dead or something happened <laughs> I had it's some true no, it's oh, so true and there's just you know there are just tiny little I'm, I'm very much managed I like to lift people up in their situation so they can all succeed but we like to say when there's only 15 days, especially when the train has left the station, that's her. She's the train. Yeah. It's going. Yeah. It is going. Absolutely. There's so many people with the attitudes of we'll fix it in post. No, nope, we'll fix it in prep. And if we don't shoot it today, we don't have it. The well, script changes. So that's just some people are get, get to work in really comfortable situations. But we'll get there. <laughs> I made a movie for $2,500 and everyone will always know that because it can be done no matter what. A lot of this extra stuff is bells and whistles, but I will run and I'll prep prosthetics two, three hours before yes, they go because nobody understands that. It never like, works out. People it's... will come in for an hour and a half prosthetic and be like, can you finish it in 45 minutes? No, no. we wrote down that it's an hour and a half. That's just obviously how it goes. Sylvie also very technical. She always stays with the DP. She usually stays with cast members one and two and three because whatever one is going through, if they're in one of our movies, it's shitty. They it's don't really have a good life. And I just have to let them hard. know how miserable they are all the time. Yeah. Hey, are you are you miserable today? Okay, good. You're not? Okay, let me let you let me get you there. Absolutely. And you know, a lot of it, you know, they're <laughs> challenging themselves and really pushing themselves into some very very dark places i remember Danielle? in the infamous scene uh with katie in this uh storage locker with dr grant i remember asking her offhandedly like hey katie are you okay with this she's like no i'm really sure <laughs> this is horrifying to do thinking that this is like my assaulter and now i've done like i am worse than him now at this point in my mind and it's i can't even look at it and i was like oh Oh, sorry. I think you forget because she's ginger snaps and outside as a fan, it's so much bigger. And then to her, she's just Katie. And she's like, yeah, that movie was cool. Like she's, she's so down to earth. Like I remember when we were working with Danielle Harris on See No Evil 2 and it was right before she started a family. And we were like, well, why don't you get pregnant right now? She's like, so the first few experiences of my child's life is me running screaming while the wrestler Kane is trying to kill me. I was like, Oh yeah, good point, Danny. You just, you don't want to bring that as the first experience for the kid. But um, when I was working on American Mary, I remember I was so excited. I sent stills from one of my first days to Eli Roth, who was like such a sweetheart and helped with that movie. Uh, was giving us the push to get it made, and he said, "That's really great that you got one day. Don't celebrate right and want anything right now." He's like, "You always make sure you get everything that you want. Get your days, and that that's totally fine. And don't celebrate until the entire movie is in the can." And I was like, "Okay, good advice. So no matter what it is, like even when my crew is like we're in like a horrible situation, I'm like guys, we gotta kill this one person. We gotta get this tentacle. I know it sucks right now, but when we're sitting there watching the DVD, we're gonna be happy. We were sweaty or." cold or whatever you won't even remember this you'll just be like i did that yeah no matter what budget you work under you wish there were more 
You know, oh, I've had yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, I bet no it's matter it's where you go. Million, it's still not enough money for what they're trying to pull off. <laughs> I bet it is. I mean, I know how fast visual effects go up. It's true. Yeah. Expensive. Well, I remember working on Amazing Stories and talking to Steven Spielberg. Uh, we had just seen uh, Terminator 2. And that was the budget was a hundred million dollars. It went up to a hundred million dollars. And I mentioned that to Stephen. I said, Did you know it costs a hundred million? And he said to me, I don't know how I could spend a hundred million dollars on the movie. <laughs> well, he learned. <laughs> but you know there's a way. <laughs> yeah, there's a way. <laughs> it's there's, not there's a will, there's a way. But you yeah, know exactly. what? I I am such a prosthetic girl. I still yeah. I'm still very much like, if I can do it practically, I'll get away from it. Not only because a lot of the process, the visual effects take me out of the moment, because I'm, I'm just so picky about what I'm seeing. I wish they would do like a, a practical Hulk yeah. or something. Yeah. Oh, we're, yeah. We're doing a practical monster movie, but because of COVID, it like, it pushed it, pushed it a little bit more, but I'm so excited to finally get a person in a suit. I think Unseen, and we have a few projects that I, I think, I think Unseen has a guy in a suit too. I think everything we have coming up is guys in the suits. Yes. And monsters. And they're original monsters. They're not the, they're, I like to call them Stephen King monsters because it's like, it, oh, it's yeah, never been. Oh yeah, because you always had a Langelier or something. What? You're like, or, or a Tommy Knocker. Or you did one yeah. of my favorite Desperation Tack that was, Jen and I would always oh. joke and we'd say Tack and then we'd be like, why would you say tack? I mean, it's such, it was, <laughs> there's such a good satire to those books. I mean, like, oh, yeah, you got them in the films too. Because we weren't allowed, we had to read them to watch the movies, we'd split them up. Yes. That was like our early directing, oh. pitching to each other too. Because I remember she'd like, tell me what happened in Desperation. And then I'd read and be like, I already know what happens. It's too slow. It's like 90 pages. <laughs> and that way we could get through more that way. Especially <laughs> with books like The Stand. That one Damn. was long. It's like the Bible, yeah. but also it set my sights unrealistically high for the apocalypse. I was always hoping we would all just <laughs> drop dead. Some of us would go to Vegas and the rest would be in the corn. It, it's funny yeah. to say this from the state of the world, but what disturbed me so much about that movie that you did was, or this TV series adaptation of uh, The Stand was, I, as a, at that age, never thought something could happen where the world government wouldn't be able to take care of you. Now my, my opinion is a hundred percent different, but that was yeah, my first yeah, no introduction to it. And then I remember I went to bed and I couldn't stop crying, which ruined my horror movie privileges forever. And my mom Sorry. was you're I know it's okay, Mick. Cool. Mick, we're good now. And she came in, she was like, Sylvia, are you crying? I was like, <laughs> she's like, is it because of the stand? Was it too scary? You were supposed to tell me if it got too scary. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was upset that the good people died. I was, it was like I couldn't, I couldn't rectify it because I was like, but God shows them and they die. I'm like, what about Jesus? I'm like, oh no. So all the good people died too. This, is, this isn't good. I got to listen to Blue Oyster Cult without going back to that scene where it's going through all the dead people. That that was the one that haunted. Beautiful, beautifully done. Nah. Like, thank you for upsetting me and giving me nightmares. I'm sure you get it all the time. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the next step in your career because suddenly you're working with WWE and so-called studio with Lionsgate. But you know, your first two movies were homemade and they were 
they were what you wanted them to be. You were 100% in control of what they were. Suddenly, you're working for not only a movie production company, but a wrestling organization. Yeah. What was that experience? And were you wrestling fans before you tackled it? Yes, we're actually huge wrestling fans, but Sylvia was a Shawn Michaels fan and I was an Undertaker fan. And Mick, I don't know if you're a fan, but every so often the Undertaker would die. He'd go on a break and it would just be too tense for me because sometimes the bells would go on, sometimes the lights would go off. And I just stopped watching somewhere around the Attitude Era. And that was like blood, sex. It, it was, was for grown-ups. Steve Austin <laughs> would show up and crack a beer and like chug two and throw was... the rest into the audience. That's what I thought I was hired for. Flip forward to WWE. And they're like, so there's no profanity. There's definitely no blasphemy. There's no blood. There's no, and I was like, ha, 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 ha. And they're no, and I'm like, serious. No. And we're like, really? And, and I also like, asked them, what film did you hire us based off of? And they're like, American Mary. And I'm like, <laughs> you hired us off American Mary and said no sex, no blood. <laughs> you seen American Mary? A nice family wrestling movie. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. And so immediately, because we had such a good time with Katie, we're like, okay, well, it's starring Catherine Isabel. And they're like, no, I'm not going to let you guys make American Mary too. I was like, it's about a birthday party in a morgue after a murderer killed people and the key's there and he comes back to life. Nothing like American Mary. Trust me. They're like, no, seriously, she can't. you can't. And we It's Halloween too, guys. It's definitely Halloween too. And somehow, <laughs> I, was uh, the, I was the unit publicist on Halloween too. So <laughs> I go back, way back. <laughs> a good series right like that that's such a, an epic throwback back and I feel like if you're not self-aware and slashers you're not really bringing anything new and uh you can do right. it really seriously but we wanted to do something stupid and we're like okay so they won't let us have Catherine Isabel and Danielle Harris had somehow heard about the movie and had seen American Mary and was like I want to work with you guys I want to be in this next movie and we're like Okay, so we have two of the, we have, we have Danielle, they won't let us have Catherine, but we're going to get her somehow. And we're like, okay, so let's, let's work on the script. So we changed all the names, the kills, the characters to gender. So the girls <laughs> kind of the jocks. The and beginning, the end, and we strengthen the, strengthen the dialogue. And I love saying that because people say that's a page one rewrite. I'm like, no, no, they don't like page, page one, one rewrite. rewrite. That's scary to say, but saying all those things, <laughs> a couple of tweets. And then as a joke to us, we still put Kane in a plastic apron. So it is American Mary too. Um <laughs> <laughs> a gender bent American Mary. Yeah. And don't, don't you tell me what I can't do in my movies now. I have to but it's funny that as odd as it was like no blasphemy no anything they're like let's push sex though like really really hard and I thought um if I was running from someone like six foot three like Glenn Jacobs I don't you. think I would stop to take my clothes off no. to have sex <laughs> no. or anything so anytime that we were supposed to put sex and we put the opposite version of the sex that they wanted they wanted a blowjob we had a huge argument about the other thing happening with her boyfriend. Well, so that was a dude originally, a dude that kept getting laid and we're like, that's where we're gonna put Katie. Katie's gonna be the crazy jock that loves serial killers and like totally takes like takes her boyfriend downstairs to have. And I was like, that's <laughs> funny because that's the opposite of what you expect. Like even as a joke, her shirt opens in the sex scene, never closes for the rest of the movie. Doesn't even, <laughs> and I, it was just the whole thing was like a big joke on itself. Like how people act in these slash and it very self-aware 
and we got away with it. There was stuff we didn't get away with, but the stuff that we did get away with, like even that scene where there's a scene where Catherine comes in with her boyfriend and uh, she kind of walks over the dead body of the killer, Jacob Goodnight, played by Kane from the WWE. And she does like a, a Cinderella thing where she goes on top of him and kisses him and wa- wags her butt. If you watch that, he smiles in every take. I couldn't find one where he wasn't. <laughs> it, was, it was just such a funny scene to do. And everybody's like, oh my gosh. And I was like, that was the one me and Jen were so particular about that we we put in there. And I was like, that's you got a Sasuke sister scene in a WWE movie where they're like, please don't do any of this. And we got away with all of it. So it, it was a proud moment. It was a, it was really fun. Although I, I, I would like to do a third one because I would love to do like a kind of like a, especially one that's kind of like more supernatural. Yeah, it would have been well, easier if I didn't push so much. I, I mean, we pushed back so, so, so much to have all that like good character moments and change all the male roles to female and vice versa because it was interesting to see what a horror movie looks like if all the girls are just doing the guy stuff. It just is a film where these girls are just sexually owning these guys in really bad situations. Like, <laughs> it's a morgue. You shouldn't be why are you even here? But it just has lovely, lovely horror movie logic. Yeah, it was nice to have the final boy, which rarely happens, although I didn't like what we did to Danielle. Yeah, but (laughs) I did enjoy uh, the learning process because like I said, you go from American Mary and they really like you because you've made this really weird, controversial kind of indie film. But I found I really was watched. Yeah, even with the camera angles, like it, it would even be like, how many takes are you going to do of this? I'm like, listen, I'm not going to do a Kubrick amount of takes. I'm just going to wait until <laughs> I have the moment there. But it was really, really interesting. The amount of like micromanaging from the first film to the second film. The second film we had like hands off. Absolutely. Because they're like, oh, well, we didn't trust you. And I was like, oh, thanks for the vote of confidence. We class. added so much VFX <laughs> blood and we could have done that with the bucket of blood. And they're like, this is going to be too much blood. I was like, oh. <laughs> the discussion well not only yeah. not only did you get away with it isn't it your biggest box office movie and one of yes. the wwe's biggest Absolutely. box yes. yeah it's the biggest and when i tell people that they say i like american mary, mary more and i'm like you should buy a copy then <laughs> yes. and, uh, and it was funny that it was kane because we got introduced to wrestling when kane first came in and when we did american mary we got them we got so many horrible scripts and they're like this needs a woman director otherwise it'll seem sexist i'm like even with me i'm not going to be able to help you on that it's still going to be horrible and then when see no evil 2 came around everybody was like keep an open mind it's wrestling and i was like keep an open mind it's wrestling you have no idea and and there was even a part in the original script that the undertaker showed up and we were like you don't even barely have to pay me. And our people are like, please don't say that. They do have to pay you. <laughs> uh, the exposure of WWE, I, all I was thinking, I watched Raw like for years yeah. and years. That's three hours of my life. And they have how many different languages, how many different countries they go to. It was a really brilliant move, move to be able to like share our love and enthusiasm. I like to say that we never make a movie that we're not excited about. And I, I love wrestling movies. How and can really you make a movie? How can you make a movie you're not excited about? I don't, th- well, I don't know. It's narcissistic. I've seen people do it, but I'm also friends with their crew. And I'm always like, you abused my crew. My crew was like, you didn't know what you wanted. They knew it. They knew you didn't know what you wanted. Yeah. Well, with the success of See No Evil 2, Along comes Vendetta, they hired you to do another movie for them. So did they basically lay off? 
A little bit more, but the funny thing was that we were the first female directors they ever hired. And then we were the first directors, period, they hired back, which I took as a very uh -huh. nice move. And they had just started making a deal with Lionsgate. And Lionsgate, although I very rarely got to speak with them, were very, very happy with us. And they wanted us to be the ones doing the first of this action six pack movie. Yeah, and there were a lot of people like, the girls can't do anything that's violent. They're like, you've literally never seen this <laughs> movie before. Oh, we've uh, always been so accused of making very feminine films. And I'm like, you oh, clearly yeah. haven't seen any of my films. Yeah, we re we recently uh, changed our, uh, our director's reels because for a long time, they were so violent and so ballsy because everyone, there's so many people that were like, well, I don't want to see them. We're not making a girl movie. And it's like, honestly, please just look at the sauce because they don't, they make a very kind of style of movies, whatever girly is. I mean, I think our, I think it is girly. I think Martyrs is a girly film, but <laughs> Martyrs is I'm a, definitely a feminist film. It's so girly. It. The spirit is girly. Girls are psychopathic. It's but interesting. I loved making an action film, Mick, because I love to say the difference between an action film and a horror movie is if in a horror movie, yeah. you have to care about everyone that dies. Like in a horror movie, only one person can die or almost die and it's like incredible yeah. in an action movie you don't care no. they don't need a name they <laughs> just need a character and the more you kill them the more cool they die everyone's like yay who cares and it, so it was tell me the difference in approach uh from doing a horror movie to doing an action movie man well, i had hoped i had more time for my stunts but i had amazing coordinators we worked with <laughs> yeah so kimani smith was our stunt coordinator and dan rizzuto was our fight coordinator and uh most of our inmates were stunt actors and uh after every day of filming they would go with big show or dean kane and they would go through the coordinated stunt fight that was the next day every day there is at least one coordinated fight and uh one, some days there were three coordinated fights uh wow. on a 15-day shoot huh? on a 15-day <laughs> shoot i feel the way that we got away with it a lot of the time was lying like there's some times where they'd be like i'm not you should put my stunt guy in there i'm gonna i'm i'm not gonna do that i'd be like that's awesome and by the time they were done they're like you just made me do the whole fight it was like yes because you're practicing it and I can see your face and don't worry your stunt guy's gonna get it too but like it, it was like boot camp yes uh, I'm glad that even back in dead hooker in the trunk I always really wanted to be a stunt woman yeah. trained in martial arts I wouldn't say that I'm near a level to coordinate a fight at all but I do have the respect and understanding of what it takes and how long and where I know where the camera is going to be especially there's like the sh the scene with the sink coming off the wall that was one take. We were getting kicked out we of there. We shot it in half an hour. There were so many whole oh scenes God. we shot in half an hour and we still turned around. And honest yeah. to God, after that, and we were, by the end, all of us and the boys were like a finely like a oiled unit. Like we had our last day, we finished half a day early. We got a, a bottle of scotch and a, a box of Cuban cigars. And then we wrapped up all the wires together. It was, and everybody, there's a picture of all of us smoking them. And I was like, that's <laughs> probably the easiest end of shoot I've ever gotten. Cause you're never like, oh, we're a day done. What are we gonna do? Let's just put the gear away and just have a little like good, good for you kind of party. I feel stunts inflict like such fear in producers yes. because I, probably every day that I had a fight, my, one of the producers would just breeze by me and be like, gotta lose it. You gotta gotta lose, lose this it. fight. No, it's going too far. You're gonna lose it. You can't do it. And I'd go over then I'd go over to like my actors and be like, 
they say we're gonna have to st- cut your fight because you can't do it. And then like Dean Kane and whoever would be like, oh, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. I'll get it in one take. And they always do. They always did. And I always went back over. But you know, WWE was the kind of studio that would be counting down like, You've got 20 minutes left. Yes. And it wouldn't be like, can't I just, you know, save this? Cause I was, you know, 40 minutes less the next day. And they're like, nope, every day it's its own day. Yeah. It, it really kind of trains you. It's why when people are like, are you afraid of working in TV? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> I feel if we didn't have Vendetta, we wouldn't have the same kind of run and gun skills that saved our <laughs> lives in Rabbit, literally saved our lives. <laughs> yeah, and I well, love that. Well, that was the next movie, uh, and you're treading on sacred ground. You know, I, you're, the you're walking, arrogance to touch a David Cronenberg <laughs> film. Who dares David Cronenberg do? movie, it's a classic. And so tell me oh, about that so beautiful. Well, I felt it was okay because years ago, my parents went and met Marilyn Chambers. And that was a story that they used to tell me. And obviously until I was grown up, I didn't know, like, I had to sneak David Cronenberg movies in my movie because of, in my house because of the sexual content. So I watched uh, uh, Shivers when I was a kid, didn't know it was David, watched Crash as a kid, had no idea it was David, couldn't even <laughs> tell anybody what I had seen because it was I was just like, what have I just seen? And then eventually he became my favorite director. And one day we got an email saying, hey, would you like to remake Rabbit? And we're like, of course I would. And we told our people and they're like, this is no way a real job. Don't don't even respond. And the next day we had a Skype interview with these people. And it was so exciting because they had gotten the property and they had written a script and they had given it to David. And uh, I've talked to David since about this and he doesn't even remember saying this, but they told me that that they said, uh, he said, uh, this is rabid in title alone and you know nothing about my work. So then (laughs) they Googled Cronenberg and me and Jen's name popped up and then they emailed us. And then when they interviewed us, they were like, can you explain what Cronenberg means? (laughs) Because we're confused. We thought we were buying rabid so we can make the Jaws version of rabid dogs. Is it different? Uh, this I know, time, <laughs> the, uh, real horror struck in because uh, I am two things. I'm a David Cronenberg fan first, and I'm a filmmaker, probably a second. And I knew this film was going to get made one way or another. Yeah. And it was it was with people by their own admission that knew nothing about David's work, had no real interest in learning about it. And I really <laughs> felt that I wanted to protect David and his legacy and write something that was a love letter to him. I wanted to give him part, make part American Mary and part rabid. And I also wanted anyone that loved the film to get interested in David's work. And my favorite thing is anyone who hates our rabid says, they suck. David Cronenberg is amazing. And I'm like, thank of you. Of course he is. You're and complimenting like- my favorite hero. There is no, <laughs> there's no lose here for me. And they're like, which one do you think's better? And I'm like, well, David Cronenberg isn't remaking American Mary. So, so I'm pretty sure one day, hopefully, David is still imagining his everything. But you know, I really, I really wanted to take one to like protect David. The funniest thing, Mick, is after when we met David, he was such a fan of American Mary. He's, yeah. We're mutually friends with like, of course, his kids and Mary Heron. He said he would have met us anytime. He loves us. And I was like, we screwed up. We made a movie that was impressive just to have, have a lunch with you. We could have had it any time. But that was 
you know, I honestly said that was the last movie I've made for someone else. And David would have never asked me to. He he was so like touched and he said the movie ended up where it meant to. And then we got to talk about Dead Ringers where you could kill me uh, afterwards. Like that's that's my favorite. Yeah. Oh, isn't it yeah. good? Oh. I waited uh, so long to watch uh, Dead Ringers because there are so many I think twins are like our own little like separate kind of minority yeah. and the Olsen twins, they were the first Truman show and twins are generally treated like a little like sex joke or a little like stupid joke and everything. So I actually, Dead Ringers was the last of David's films that I watched because yeah. I didn't want to see something that would hurt me. And I was like, who does Jeremy Irons think? Well, <laughs> well who does he think he well, is? Well, he um, showed me who he <laughs> thinks he is. Because, oh I, my I love that. God. Well, I, I did the making of scanners and I did the making of Videodrome and, oh! and I hired I hired David as an actor in a miniseries called The Judge and also in a show called Happy Town. And, <laughs> and he's so terrific and he's such a brilliant one of a kind filmmaker. And didn't you make a deal for remakes of other of his titles? We've been trying, we have been trying to get Dead Ringers. We have an interviewed for it, but Rachel Weiss is hiring uh, people that she knows. And she is very aware that we exist and that we want it. And respectfully, I really, really hope that we even get to speak to her on it. But respectfully, I have, I've been dreaming about making a Dead Ringers remake. Forever. It'll happen with or without. Our our goal (laughs) is to get the Olsen twins to come out of retirement. I know it sounds crazy, but here's the thing. When do twins get to own the narrative of their mm-hmm. own sexuality? And there was all that, the big countdown and everything. Let's weird them out, Olsons. Watch this, watch Ted Ringers. Let's, let's, how about you guys are in control of the narrative and it's twins and we have like a bunch of twins everywhere. And instead of them being a gynecologist, you make them proctologists or GIs now. Now you're switching the entire thing and making it like super uncomfortable. And it's like, it's still vulnerability, but it's incredibly fetishized as well. Oh, especially for men. Like some men won't even go to the doctor to get that because of that. And then you're (laughs) taking that and you're making it super uncomfortable. You're putting the Olsen twins in a position like that. in the original when he's using the wrong things oh my god God. that is the worst exactly it basically it's vengeance me and the olsen twins need vengeance for what we saw in the original dead ringers but i want people i want them to show off what great actresses they are and just to be able to do something like it's, it's something artistic almost european feeling where they get so much creative control and then go back to being billionaires girls do whatever you want <laughs> i know you don't need this we could get elizabeth to play both of them it would be, it would <laughs> be oh, that's right but because i think that would be fascinating because she knows the twin dynamic right but i always said that so it should be us because i don't ah. have to ask you to do anything i tell you what you're doing <laughs> <laughs> there's a certain love like i have so much respect for actors and as soon as an actor says they won't do something and they'll come back on set because they want to make everyone happy they're like I changed my mind I'm gonna do that thing and I always say no you don't you told oh. me before and yeah. I'm I'm like your mom now I'm like I always know I become your Jiminy Cricket I protect you Sylvia <laughs> however and dead hooker in a trunk hey we're gonna tie this thing around your wrist and drag you down this road there's like horse crap here so be careful about it the truck's gonna go 40 to 60 good luck Sylvia how does the truck know if I hurt myself? Just stay on your pads as much as possible. Okay. I'm good to her. I mean, I'm just, 
share. I lasted. But, oh. you know, I would say our greatest takeaway from Rabbit, other than the fact that I no longer fear hell, like there is no directing experience that I don't think I could survive now, is the takeaway Martin Katz, David's yeah. uh, producer from his most recent films onwards. I would say that he seems to have a lot of support nowadays, like his most recent work. And you yeah. can tell that Martin really gets David. And it's fascinating because Martin Katz of Prospero Pictures isn't necessarily a horror guy, but I don't think Cronenberg would describe himself as a horror guy. Oh, I don't Cronenberg really... definitely would not no. describe him. <laughs> I mean, he it's really resists that label, yeah. <laughs> I hate the label myself, but I'm stuck with female Canadian twin horror. And yeah. I keep trying to break my way out of horror. There's something that we're up for that's PG-13 that is outside so of our box. And I really hope we get it because I want to show people that yeah, I can scare the shit out of you, but I'm a nice person. Yeah, and before yeah. we before we're playing with any uh, other David Cronenberg uh, properties, because obviously they are sacred and should be left in their sacred place, we are planning on collaborating with Mark Irwin, who is fucking spectacular. Oh. We tried yeah. to get Mark on Rabbit, but for whatever reason, it <sighs> didn't work out. And since then, he we've been attaching him to everything that we're we're doing. I mean. I, you you know Mark he's he's utterly yep. brilliant and so, such a kind so man. nice yeah. and he's he's humble about his genius like uh I remember we were in Toronto at the same time and he was telling me he his favorite thing to do on set is hey we did this trick in the 80s and it costs like nothing you want to try it and I'm like my favorite thing we did this in the 80s cost next to nothing looks great on fat camera <laughs> a legend is telling me to do oh. it I'm good let's do it let's do it <laughs> Well, I had an amazing experience. You know, I've spent most of my life within the horror genre as well, and gladly because I love it. It's something I do because it's passion. But doing some uh, episodes of television shows, like Once Upon a Time, who would have imagined me doing fairy tale story? <laughs> and it was one of the best experiences I ever had. Mm -hmm. Uh, the most emotional scene I've ever directed was in one of the episodes of Once Upon a Time, where even the crew was in tears during this scene. And working with Robert Carlyle and these people, it just was really an amazing thing. And to be able to step outside the box once in a while is really so regenerating. Oh, and yeah, they're a master of fantasy too, because yeah. I I never I guess I'm like Wednesday Adams. My my level for horror is just I think it's funny, it's silly, unless it's real life horror. That just definitely turns me off. So I it's difficult to go into a project and say that it's you know just one genre or the other. Yeah. I really love the ability to be able to tell stories. And, you know, I wish people would be a bit more open to horror. I feel sometimes people feel about horror like they feel about pornography. They're like, oh, it's this horrible stuff. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what are you Googling? Because yeah, there is yeah. an offer that when you go onto oh. the sites, you have to look. I always well, say I always yeah. I always say that good horror is good drama first. Yeah, and it's difficult. Yeah. Absolutely. I, like I said, it's a drama where something exciting happens. It's not so heavy handed with the message. A good horror you come out of as a better person, but you don't know how you got there. Oh, that's yeah. true. That's good. You know, before we wrap it up, I don't want to pass by your work in comic books <laughs> because, you know, Night Nurse and working with Marvel, you're part of the Marvel universe now, too. So tell me about that experience and how you stepped into it. 
Well, for a little while, Jennifer and I were attached to a film called Painkiller Jane, which one day we are going to do a superhero movie. Gosh darn it. <laughs> and uh, around that point, uh, we got indoctrined or introduced to all of the Marvel writers and the DC writers. And they're like, these girls are going to start working for for uh, the films. And we met a bunch of the heads, higher ups. And then at one point, they're like, would you like to do a short story for us? And we're like, oh, my gosh. I get to write and we we're like that's it and they're like you get 10 pages I was like that's gonna be the greatest 10 pages of my life my like my whole life is Marvel like there's <laughs> they're every they're everywhere like I our places like head office is gonna come in and do a flare check and if there's 10,000 pieces in here we get to direct the next Marvel movie. I remember we were <laughs> when we were starting up rabid we were trying to get the dead a Deadpool job too and even our, our producers reached out and they're like can you please stop going for Deadpool while we're making rabid because it's getting a lot of unnecessary and I was like I can't I can't help it it's just such a passion for us so we wrote those 10 pages and we we put a lot of heart into it it's uh, it's about about an end of the world world scenario and uh, it was so popular that when neil degrasse tyson dropped out of doing uh, guardians of the galaxy they're like obviously the twins they're they, neil they're degrasse and they're the exact same person the pretty same much you know yeah <laughs> I, I, I see that yeah. right you see it it's obvious it's obvious and then um while we were making rabbit they they messaged us and they said do you ladies i know you ladies don't have time but do you want to do a halloween story and we started joking and we're like well what's it about and they're like you can make anything and no one's off the table like you could even have captain america and because we were doing rabbit we're like oh so he's like marilyn chambers and he has the tentacle coming out of his arm and i know how you guys are you always censor out our gay jokes because like 90 percent of it is the gay jokes that our editor just kindly takes out well, we're big fans of that <laughs> you, you gotta put it in there it's between the panels and i, I remember them being like well it's more like the thing like you know because captain america was in the ice and uh we ended up doing a captain america the thing where uh, Deadpool actually references David Cronenberg because he gets body horrid sucked into another person. And I was like, that feels like a life. It's like, that's such a weird niche thing to have like a Canadian superhero reference David Cronenberg. He even references society in that panel. And I'm like- I love it. Oh, dude, <laughs> I hope somebody opens that comic, doesn't get that and has their mind blown on these great movies. One of my yeah. great joys is that comic book is being sent to Rob Boutin. Oh yeah, Rob Boutin's <laughs> getting it. I'm. I would say, well, I mean, like, I'm so excited we even get to do these things. It's like, I'm, we're such giant nerd fans. And then- one, I know the feeling. Oh, right? Well, <laughs> okay. you never work a day in your life if you're doing this stuff and you just keep waiting for someone to be like, are we allowed to? I mean, we're all playing pretend here. We're grownups. Yeah, don't we grew up reading. Don't, I, I hope they don't see this. <laughs> yeah, growing up reading these characters, they meant, I mean, we were not, we we're identical twins, but we we're not popular yeah. at all growing up. We we're very bullied <laughs> because everything that we love, like horror, comic books, video games, wrestling, that was what nerds liked and also we would put ourselves between other bullies and like ESL students. So we just kind of brought the target kind of more towards us. Yeah. And those characters like Peter Parker, yeah. like he was such an important friend I had growing up because no offense, Peter, you're a loser, but you make the best of it. Yeah, like he, had, he does. He was laughing for no reason. Relatable. And to be able to be put in a position where we can write those stories. So I've, I've never been more proud of any story than the ones we've written for Marvel, particularly the one we wrote for Black Widow. Yeah. They came in and this is when the movie was going to be R. They, ours was a little bit too hard for what they were taking a look at. And I'm, they I'm hired proud. us for that. 
Yeah, and they also hired us because they said, can you make a man pick up a Black Widow comic? And I said, yeah, lots, lots of guys aren't ashamed to watch one of our movies. I don't. I think that Black yeah. Widow is pretty badass if you write her that way. Yeah, but they made her so soft in the films. And yeah. uh, I remember we were talking about the Marvel Max comics and they're like, ooh, that would be cool if we did a Marvel Max for Black Widow. Yeah, and we got to do this amazing story and we said, no boyfriends, I don't have any extra characters, we just want to focus on what a badass Russian like KGB trained spy Natasha is. She's the kind of person that I probably wouldn't be comfortable leaving around children, but she's also exactly the last person you want to leave your child with, you know, for protection. And the story was such a a huge hit and uh, I'm it was really like so special to be able to write like literally the most recognized female superhero in Marvel right now who has no powers technically by the way yeah she had just recently died in the comics and uh, that was the only thing that he changed in her script they're like oh she's a clone I was like can we reference it they're like absolutely not I was like we're gonna kind of reference it (laughs) Marvel was so brave they I thought they were gonna censor the shit out of our story because spoiler alert it was about child sex trafficking and Natasha single-handedly brings down a child sex trafficking ring that's online and it's just such a fuck yeah story it's just so feel good and I thought that Marvel would be like they would censor that but it made sense because she grew up in a red room and she yeah. was a, a kid and a we and she was because she had just died she was having this existential moment of who I am and it was a way to re-examine her strengths and also the strengths of the more shadowy parts of her character I mean Captain America isn't going to go to a different island where they're trafficking kids and murder all the traffickers Black Widow though for sure and there's something about that mama bear kind of grizzly bear kind of i mean or tear you apart thing that it was just it was so fun to write and then i think it was too hard because they relaunched the character like four times after that they preferred her with the boyfriend especially since they're <laughs> gearing into the movie that the original plan was we were going to come on to black widow and carry her through but after five issues we just were invited out for the time being. <laughs> I, and but somehow the Soskas always get their way. We all will be back. One day they're going to like tank Deadpool and they're finally going to be like, okay, girls, what is the story that you have? Of course we have a brilliant one, but one, we'll wait for your call, Marvel. One day when it's a completely worthless property, they'll be like, does anybody want this? I'll be like, me. Pick me. I'm ready. I do take great pride that we wrote Deadpool in Marvel, of course, for our horror story, but we also co-wrote the Deadpool triple X porn parody that Axel Braun directed. Yeah. Those films, if you haven't seen them, Mick, they really are for the fans. Yeah, Deadpool is self-aware, and so he finds out he's so popular he gets to be an adult film now. But the joke is he can't get laid. Still. I know. It's got a good plot, see? That's why people watch those movies, for the plot. It's got heart. It's got got heart. It's got a lot of heart. (laughs) It's got heart and a hard on, so in the same thing. Absolutely. (laughs) It's hilarious. At some point, people forget that, oh, they start doing it. Oh, yeah, I'm watching a porn. It's good adult (laughs) fun, and there's one Punisher joke in there that had me tears of laughter. (laughs) That's great. Well, Twisted Twins, it's been an absolute pleasure, and we could keep going on again, and we will. Yes, but, uh, thank you so much man. for joining us. Oh, thank you. All right, and I can't wait to see the next monster movie. Oh, absolutely. I hope I hope maybe you can come visit if yeah. the world becomes normal. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Mick. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.